You are now listening to the November 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today, we'll learn about King Jehoram. He was the fifth king of southern Judah. His life is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, and 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Jehoram was the first son of King Jehoshaphat. From our previous episodes, we learned that Jehoram's father, Jehoshaphat had done some foolish things owing to his greed and his own personal agendas. However, when God admonished him about his wrongdoings through a prophet, he repented and returned before God. He then corrected his ways to serve the Lord and to administer his people to follow the precepts of the Lord. Jehoshaphat had seven sons. As he was getting old, and sensed he was drawing near to the end of his life, Jehoshaphat tried to put his house in order. He first set aside his first son, Jehoram, and bequeathed the other six sons silver, gold, and other treasures, and assigned fortified cities of Judah. He then handed over to his firstborn, Jehoram, the throne. Jehoram spent four years together with his father, reigning over southern Judah, before his father passed away. When his father, Jehoshaphat, died in 848 BC, Jehoram took over the throne and from there on ruled over southern Judah alone. The Bible records that Jehoram was 32 years old at the time. As Jehoram started to reign over southern Judah alone, he gained power. Once his power became solidified, He moved forward with a horrible plan. Fearing they could be a threat to his power, he proceeded to murder all of his brothers and some leaders who opposed him. Unfortunately, this gruesome act was just the beginning. Throughout his life, he opposed God and worshipped the idols that were detestable to God. Much of these terrible deeds are attributable to the fact that he was married to a daughter of Ahab. Second Chronicles chapter 21 verse 6 says, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. As we mentioned above, Ahab was an evil king who resisted God and instead served idols until the very end. Jehoram was married to the daughter of Ahab for political reasons. Her name was Athaliah, and when she came to Judah, she brought the idols with her. Jehoram then bowed to these idols and followed the ways of Ahab. Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, God did not destroy him right away. The reason can be found in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David, 
because of the covenant which he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. God did not want to destroy Jehoram for the sake of his forefather David. This was to keep his covenant with David as he promised David to give a lamp to his descendant. Instead of destroying Jehoram right away, God tried to work with him by making things difficult for him. God allowed Edom and Libna, that had been under Judah's rule, to rise up against Judah by declaring independence. This angered Jehoram, so he instigated a war against Edom by gathering his commanders and chariots. However, instead of gaining back Edom and Libna, he barely escaped the war by the skin of his teeth. The Edomites surrounded him and pressed on his commanders of the chariots. Jehoram somehow found a way to sneak through by night. Little did he know that God was actually helping him escape because he remembered his covenant with David. However, Jehoram did not repent and come before God. Instead, he rebelled against God. He built high places in several hills in Judah and made the people in Jerusalem worship idols. This response was opposite from what his father Jehoshaphat would have done. Jehoshaphat would have repented before God, accepting God's discipline and leading the people of Judah to return before God. In stark contrast, Jehoram restored the high places and brought back the idols that his grandfather Asa and father Jehoshaphat had removed. Jehoram made all the people in Judah to worship and serve the idols. God sent the prophet Elijah to deliver his word. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the king of Israel, and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, as the house of Ahab played the harlot. And you have also killed your brothers, your own family, who were better than you. Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And you will suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness, day by day. God was patient for a long time while Jehoram committed one misdeed on top of another. That was because of his promise to David. Eventually, God brought judgment upon Jehoram, who continued to commit evil in his sight. The Lord aroused against Jehoram the hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs who lived near Cush. They attacked Judah, invaded it, and carried off all the goods found in the king's palace, together with his sons and wives. Not a son was left to him, except the youngest son, Jehoahaz, who was also called Ahaziah. Then, as God prophesied through the prophet Elijah, Jehoram was afflicted with an incurable disease. Two years passed, and Jehoram's bowels 
came out because of the disease, and he died. The Bible says that he died to no one's regret. The Bible made no fire in his honor, which was customary at the time. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tomb of the kings. Not only did he serve idols and did evil in the sight of God, Jehoram was also an evil king to the people. His father Jehoshaphat was honest before God. To the contrary, Jehoram served the idols his wife brought and did evil before God. Because of the covenant with David, God did not destroy Jehoram immediately, but waited patiently for him to learn from his mistakes and to return to him as his father Jehoshaphat had done. However, Jehoram was not able to perceive God's grace. He himself worshipped the idols and made the people to serve the idols. He committed abominable acts before God. God disciplined Jehoram by making him ill from a disease. Unfortunately, to the very end, Jehoram never turned back to God. This concludes today's episode from Story of Kings. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Number one, you're supposed to have it all together And when they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them never better Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors Truth be told, the truth is rarely told. I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken, and when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. When being honest is the only way to fix it There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know So let the truth be told There's a sign on the door that says come as you are, but I doubt it if we lived like that was true Every Sunday morning pew would be crowded But didn't you say church should look more like a hospital A safe place for the sick The sinner and the scarred and the prodigals Like me Well truth be told The truth is rarely told Am I the only one who says I'm fine? Yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not I'm broken, and when it's out of control I say it's under control, but it's not And you know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is more knowledge. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And we see that in Colossians 1, 9 to 14, where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to see Paul writing to the Colossians about how they ought to pursue more knowledge of God's will. God wants us to know that more knowledge of God's will should mean increasing glory to God from our lives. As our knowledge of the will of God grows, what Paul says is, simultaneously, our lives ought to produce more glory to our God. That's what happens. There's a relationship between those two. Now we see this first in verse 9, where Paul prays for more knowledge of God's will. In verse 9. So, look there with me again in Colossians chapter 1. Now our verses this morning, verses 9 to 14, they're actually just one sentence. I know we break it up with periods and stuff, but that's just to help us follow the ideas. It's really just one sentence where Paul explains a prayer request that he has for these Colossians. And catch this, he, he wants for them, for this Colossian people, he thanks God for their salvation, the verses just before this. And then he begins to share, catch this, he shares a window into his private prayer life. And here's what he says in verse 9, Colossians 1.9, here's what he says. And so, from the day we heard of their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So here what we find is, is that Paul, Paul does something incredible. And take note, since Paul received word of the church that Epaphras has planted in Colossae, he has prayed ceaselessly for them. You see it? He begins praying. He hears they're saved. And he he doesn't just sort of chalk up a notch and say, great, let's move on. He says, now I need to pray for them. And Paul, when he prays for them, what we find out is that he prays, he says, ceaselessly. Now, let me just explain what that doesn't mean. Now, when somebody says that they pray ceaselessly, that does not mean they wake up in the morning praying. They pray through lunch. They pray until they go to bed. And then they even pray in their dreams. That's not what he's saying there. 
And I think that's important to note because we need to know what real prayer looks like. See, what Paul is saying is, I put these guys in my prayer journal. And I faithfully prayed daily. And as it came to them, I prayed for them. And I did it regularly and consistently. And that's the way that Paul prays for these Colossians. And what does Paul request for these new Christians? Well, he asks God, he asks God to give them more knowledge of God's will. Now that sounds like a huge request, doesn't it? But I think it's important just to pause for a minute and just clarify what is it that Paul is actually praying for here when he asks for them to have more knowledge of God's will. What does that mean? Well, let me just start off by saying what it's not, okay? So, so I think it's important here just to know what this is not talking about. Now, he is not asking for something that maybe most of your minds jump to, and probably the same kind of thing that I grew up believing and holding to. Uh, now, here's what he's not asking for. See, I grew up uh, reading guys like Henry Blackaby and John Eldridge, and, and I, I got a lot out of uh, their readings, but also sometimes I found things that weren't necessarily helpful. And one of the things that I really struggled with early on was this idea that they taught about sort of God's blueprint for your life when he talks about the will of God. In other words, God has a basic blueprint for your life, and and it would be described in this way. God has a perfect plan or blueprint for every individual's life, and your goal is to discover God's perfect plan and to discern the one correct choice that God has for him or her in each and every decision. Did you catch that? Each and every decision, I am trying to find God's perfect plan for my life. From the type of cereal that I first eat in the morning, to the person that I marry, to the job that I take, I am trying to discern God's perfect will for my life. So your life is about finding this perfect will, or what some call the center of God's will for your life. Now, I have a few problems with that. Um, one's just anecdotal. I grew up for the first 23 years of my life on this sort of program of understanding the will of God. And here's what happened to me. Um, I became a very anxious uh, and sad Christian because what I always ended up feeling like is I had always just kind of just missed God. Now, please hear me. What this is saying is not that like, I chose to disobey God and there were consequences. What this means is, is that I can obey God, be obedient to his word, and have many choices that could all be obedient to God's word. And yet there is one that's sort of the magical silver bullet of the center of God's will for my life. And if I miss that one, even if I make a godly decision, I have missed God's perfect will. That's not what the Bible says. See, the second problem with this view is not just my anecdotal experience of depression, but second, the problem is that it's not biblical. This is not the way that God speaks of the way that he deals with you. God is not playing like hide-and-go-seek with his will with you. And he's like, if you're really good at hide-and-go-seek, then you're going to find me and find the center of God's will. And if not, then forever after, like, I'm sorry, but you're just going to be living less of a life than what you could have had. See, Bruce Walkie, speaking of this, says Scripture never commands God's people to find or discover His will as if it were mysteriously hidden. And it never promises God intends to give it in every situation. 
You don't need to feel like you are looking for special knowledge in every situation and decision. Doesn't mean that you don't pray, that you're not asking for God's leading, that you're not looking to Scripture. But it means that God doesn't like give up on you because you missed it. But there's a third reason I don't like this view, and that it discourages the sufficiency of Scripture for equipping saints for every good work. See, if you're constantly having to look to Jesus and some kind of like special experience to confirm the decision that you've made, we're going to talk about good decision making later, but if you're like constantly thinking to yourself, I've got to get some kind of special word from God, then all of a sudden you're not looking to God's revealed truth, you're looking for some special experience beyond it. And that means that this word is not sufficient for equipping us for every good work and pleasing God. Friends, the Bible is sufficient. He has given us His word. We can trust that it can lead us to bring glory to God. And we need to trust that with every decision that we make. So that's, not, that's what it's not. It's not seeking some kind of special knowledge from God. No, what it is though, what the knowledge of God's will is, is something quite different. And when we speak of God's will, usually we're speaking of it in the sense first of God's will of decree. And that speaks of how of what shall be. God's will of decree is what shall be. So Ephesians 1.11 speaks of this where Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of His own will. Who was the Lord's counselor? The Lord. And nobody counseled the Lord on what to do. He, he knows best. And He does everything according to the counsel of His own will. See, God's will of decree is that decree that we are promised throughout the the pages of Scripture will come to pass. Now this will, friends, it is largely hidden from us. But the Scriptures actually, at times, reveal God's will of decree after it's happened. Like for instance, you remember Genesis 50-20, where Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery, and then they apologize for it, And Joseph forgives them. And do you remember how he explained the reason that he forgave them? He tells them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you see it? He he pulls back the veil to see the mind, the hidden mind of God. And when he gets back there, what he sees is something amazing. He says, those things that we saw played out in real time that were intended for evil for us, God was simultaneously at work, and despite your efforts, He was working them out for our good. You see it? Well, you do now. Because He's shown it to us. And Romans 8.28 tells us that that same God, the God of Joseph, works all things together for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. So that that same hand that we see revealed behind all of the evil intentions towards Joseph is working those for his good. God says, catch this, I have that same hand working for you behind the curtain, working all things together for your good. See, the Bible also reveals not only that hidden hand of God in the past, but He also reveals what God values in His decrees. Right? So, so what is God like? What is His character like? Well, the Bible tells us this. It, it, the Bible tells us that God feed scavenger birds like ravens and people. But even though he feeds both, he values people more because people were created in his image. And so we should expect that what God wants 
ultimately climaxes in the way that he views humanity. We see that on display in his word. See, God's promises are decrees that will come to pass. Brothers and sisters, the promises that God has given us, has made to us and for us, they will come to pass. He's decreed it. There's nothing going to stop it. God will keep His promises. All of the vast and good promises that God has made for us, they shall come to be. And yet, what we here find here is, man is also mysteriously responsible for his sins. God's decrees come to pass. He is sovereign in authority. And man is responsible. And, and that's what the Bible teaches clearly. But that leads us to a second way that the Bible speaks of God's will. Uh, and that is, the Bible speaks of God's perceptive will. It speaks of what should be. Right? So if the decretive will is what shall be, the perceptive will is what should be. Not always it. Doesn't always come to fruition, right? So we see God's perceptive or moral will in Acts 17.30 where we are told that it is God's will that all men everywhere repent and believe the gospel. That's what God has told us. Every man ought to do this. But God did not decree that all men everywhere will be saved. We also see this in the fact that it's sin to steal. Right? God has said, my will is that you do not steal. We see that in the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, bad to steal. And yet people steal, right? Well, why is that? Well, because he's given you his preceptive will. This is what ought to be, but because of sin, it doesn't always work that way. So that's different from his decreed will. Now here in Colossians 1.9, coming back to it, Paul tells these young Christians that he wants them to gain more and more knowledge of God's revealed will for them. So what is he talking about here? Well, as Peter O'Brien writes in his commentary, what Paul has in mind is not some special direction for one's life, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe in verses 15 to 20. And for the Colossians, which we'll talk about in verses 21 to 23. In fact, all 15 of Paul's uses of this word for knowledge that he uses in this verse in his letters elsewhere, speaks of the knowledge of God and Christ. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of who God is and who His Son Christ is and what that means for us. Now, when you hear that, what do you think about? Maybe you kind of shut down whenever you hear anything that, that talks about learning or knowledge or makes you feel remotely like something to do with school. But what it represents, like knowledge and working and thinking and having somebody have rules over you, like they just don't like that. And for some of us might have the same kind of response when we think about like reading the Bible and studying and getting to know who God is through his word. And yet, and yet, God has uniquely made you and me as creatures with minds. Minds that are creative like God's and able to learn and to know and to relate. And so God has made us pre-equipped with our basic human model to be able to think large, great thoughts about God in a way that, catch this, no other creature on earth can. God's made you to know Him, to relate to Him, to love Him. See, this is the kind of knowledge that God calls us to. This knowledge, catch me, is not a knowledge that is just like biological 
pistons firing and having you learn facts that you can regurgitate about God. Now, what we find about this knowledge, Paul tells us that it is a spirit-based knowledge, a spirit-driven knowledge. In other words, God is on the outside of this universe, and he is working in this universe. He's not disconnected from it. And he is working in our minds and hearts to the glory of his name. See, this knowledge, Marcus Bachmuel speaks of it, and he says it is a profoundly existential, relational and responsive knowledge. It is something that, that is meaningful and deep. And he says this knowledge that Paul was speaking of, he was super passionate about it because it is the same knowledge that converts and grows Christians to new life. See, Jesus, in this knowledge, represents the blazing center and the climax of the expression of God's will for God's people in all of creation. If you want to know God's will for your life, we need to spend much time looking at Jesus, studying Christ, and seeing what that means for you. And if that bores you, or you think you've already got it, and you're like, why do I need to go back to that? You haven't studied it enough. The more that we know of Jesus, the more that we ought to be overwhelmed by how much we do not know and understand. Do you see it? The more of Him that we see, the more that we see there is of Him. The less that we see of Him, the less that we look at Him, the smaller a vision we have of Him. Friends, as we bring Christ into focus, He does nothing but get larger. See, I I take here this way that Paul describes it as being very important. Paul asks God. Do you catch that? Paul asks God Himself to fill them with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, catch this, left to yourself, you can't know the things I want you to know about Christ. You need the Holy Spirit to lead you in seeing that. And I take wisdom and understanding here to be really just qualities in verse 9 that describe the nature of God's will for us. And spiritual speaks of the source of the understanding and wisdom these Christians will need to navigate their individual and collective lives to the glory of God. We need to be led by God's Spirit itself towards the Christ of the Scriptures to be able to glorify God. And Paul's praying for what Jesus commanded His disciples to do in making disciples, right? That they would teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28. And didn't Paul also pray this for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3? They would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ for them. Do you see it? He's like, you need the Spirit to be able to know the things that you need to know about Christ. I know some of you, as you think about it, this is difficult stuff. But hear me. Paul wants all of us to press into Christ and then live our lives out from there. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes when he writes of the significance of Christ. He says this, Rest not then content without an increasing acquaintance with Jesus. Seek to know more of Him in His divine nature, in His human relationships, in His finished work, in His death, in His resurrection, in His present glorious intercession, and in His future royal advent. Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of His wounds. An increase of love to Jesus and a more perfect 
apprehension of His love to us is one of the best tests of growth in grace. You see it? You need to abide close to the cross of Christ and study the mystery of His wounds. But catch this too. Uh, Paul says that your life should change more and more as your knowledge of God's will increases. And he says this in verses 10 to 14. In other words, if you know God, your life should change. There's, there's a relationship between the two. So, second thing we see here in this text is the purpose of growing is knowing God's will is looking like God's Son. The purpose of growing and knowing God's will is looking like God's Son. See, verse 10, it tells us the purpose of Paul's desire for them to be filled with this knowledge of God. Why does he want it? Why does he want them to be filled with the knowledge of God? In verse 10 he says, So as, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I get a little bit intimidated. When I read that, I don't feel like that's like sort of a rally cry at first blush. At first blush, that feels more like um, sort of just one primary example of my shortcomings and failures. Those are the things that rush into my mind. I mean, it sounds daunting, maybe even impossible, this task for ordinary believers like you and me to live a life, catch this, worthy of Jesus, right? Like, really? Like, worthy of Jesus. That's, that's an incredible call to put on somebody's life. And even more so when we consider that Paul himself goes on to say incredible things about who Christ is in this very letter. I mean, he says, I want you to live a life worthy of Christ. And then, oh, by the way, let me tell you about who this Christ is that you're supposed to live a life worthy of. I mean, he, he goes on to say that this, this Christ, this Jesus that you speak of, created and sustains all things, both from the beginning and even now. And, and he spoke each and every molecule that exists into being. He set them in place and continues to sustain them as they rotate and revolve and connect with one another. He is the eternal Son of God who came to save us from our sins and seal us with His Holy Spirit to adopt us into God's family and to give us an internal inheritance before He returns to judge the living and the dead when He will bring that inheritance near to us. I mean, this is an incredible Christ. There is none like Him. There is none supreme as this Christ that Paul speaks of. And he says, I tell you what, I want you to live a life worthy of of that God. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel almost even more discouraged as I think about the greatness of Jesus. If I'm not thinking about it rightly. And here, what we're told is, is that we're to live a life worthy of the Christ with whom there is no parallel is those who are very ordinary people. Except for some of you, I'm sure, who are very special. But, as for people like me, we're very normal and ordinary. And this can be intimidating. Maybe you're intimidated by being called to live in a manner worthy of the Lord this morning. And maybe this just reminds you of all the ways that you are unworthy. Maybe you're thinking of sins or failures, a lack of giftedness, or all kinds of things. Maybe you're wondering, how can someone as ordinary as me live a life that is worthy of God's will in Christ? Well, don't miss this, brothers and sisters in Christ. The same Jesus that set the standard met the standard. Catch that? The same Jesus that set the standard met the standard. And the same Spirit that led Jesus leads us. Do you see the hope in that? It's it's not leaving us ordinary and hopeless, 
We have the Spirit of God to help us in Christ. The new covenant has broken out. The new creation has come forth. And we are the first fruits of that. We have that Spirit leading us. So walking in the manner of the Lord means being led by the Spirit that has been sealed on our hearts. So the more that we know Christ through God's Word and with God's people, by the power of God's Spirit, the more our lives look like it. God, He created all things good. That's the story of God. See, if we know God's story and we understand where we fit in it, we see that this calling is an amazing rallying point for those who have been saved by God. See, we know that all men, God created them. He created all things out of nothing and created us. And He did it good. In fact, we're told that man and woman were created and it was very good. We are the pinnacle of His creation. And yet, in Genesis 3, as soon as we drop on the scene, we sin against our good God. And really, the rest of the Old Testament tells us about the the reality that even if God gives us the rule book, we can't please God. Do you see it? The Old Testament leaves us desperate for meaning for humanity. It's like we can't do what God's called us to do. You, You almost wonder, are we so broken we can't be fixed? And then what we find is something startling. A new man shows up in the scene in the New Testament. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And this man comes and he is baptized by John the Baptist in Matthew 3. And do you remember what happens in Matthew 3 whenever the heavens are rent open and God the Father speaks down to God the Son? Do you remember what He says to him? He he says, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I haven't been happy in a long time and now in Christ I am pleased with this one. And here's the good news. All of those who are united by faith to this beloved one, you please me too. And I'm not talking about like a little bit of happiness where I'm sort of grimacing and turning away from you. Because I can't look at you, but I know I'm supposed to love at you. God gazes on us and he sees us in Christ. And the love that he has for Christ, it is poured out on you and me. You see that? Guys, this is good news. We're going to have to wake up on Sunday morning. That's the place where we say amen every time. His love poured out on us in full display. That's the love that God has for you and me. So when we look at the calling to live a life that is worthy of Jesus and that is fully pleasing to God, we rejoice because of what Jesus has done. Do you see it? We're not distracted by the fact that we are sinners. That sin actually propels us into being more grateful for Christ and His work on our behalf. He is the better sacrifice. He is our better priest today. And catch what that means for you and me. This means that we can please God in Christ. Now, I know that we really do sin as Christians, but the message of the New Testament is that we really don't have to sin anymore. Sin no longer has dominion over us who are under the dominion of King Jesus. And I think that's why Paul reminds us in verses 13 to 14 that when we put our faith in Jesus... He fills out our change of address form for us because He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have what? Redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Do you see it? And if we've been redeemed and forgiven, we can please God. That's what that means. So you are no longer defined, brothers and sisters. You're no longer defined in the ways that your heart lies to you and tells you that you are. Our identity is wrapped up in Jesus when we put our faith in Christ. And that means that you are no longer defined by the idols of your heart, the things that you love more than Jesus that you shouldn't. Things like the power that you desire, 
over everything and everybody, the, the control, the way that you want to control everything, the way that you uh, seek comfort and you just don't want anybody to bother you. You're not defined by those things. You're not defined by your past sins. You're not defined by your present sin struggles or your failures or your imperfections or your doubts or your fears. If you are in Christ, you are defined by your relationship to Christ and are fully a receiver of His promises. And God sees you as a citizen of the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom you have redemption and forgiveness. And maybe that's not the way that your wife, your kids, your friends, your boss, or your enemies make you feel. But friends, that is a current and real state of affairs according to Jesus Christ and His Word. There's a third thing that we see here. And that is the kind of life that has been shaped by this knowledge of Jesus. What does that look like? Well, he tells us. He gives us four ways that we can see this, this knowledge of God growing in us and us growing in it. And he goes on to give basically four ways or four things that we will see more of in our lives as we grow in the knowledge of God's will. And those are in basically 10b down to 14. Now, the first one comes at the end of 10 where it says... We should expect more and more fruit, right? This, we've heard this before. We should expect more and more fruit. I guess Paul's listening to Jesus, right? From, from John 15, like if, if we're connected to the good root, we should expect good fruit. He says there that it is his will that we are bearing fruit, that we will bear fruit in every good work. Now, think about it. You might not see more there, but if you're bearing fruit, that means you're continuously bearing fruit. You're a fruitful tree. And so you're constantly getting more and more fruit. And you should expect to see more and more fruit in your life. I think this is really interesting that he brings out new fruit here. Because as you'll remember, God created all things. Uh, We sinned against him. And what we found is, is that though we were created to multiply and fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, instead, uh, what we find is, is that we just kept on dying after Genesis 3. We just continue to, to produce death. Until Jesus. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, guess what? Uh, I am the new creation breaking out, and now you can produce fruit again. You can be fruitful and multiply so long as you are united to me, the good root. And you should expect good fruit in your life. And so here we find a couple of things. One is that work, work isn't bad and work isn't a curse. See, in the garden, work was created before the fall, and it was a good thing. And you know that it's fun to work when you're fruitful. Work is good, but we have two problems when it comes to work. One is that we're idle, and the other is that we're idolatrous, right? Either we get lazy and idle, and we don't work like God has made us to, or we're idolatrous, and we worship our work, and we find our identity in it, rather than finding our identity in Jesus. But here, the more that we find our identity in Christ, he tells us the more that you are going to be fruitful in your life spiritually. In other words... If you start trying to find your identity in your job apart from Jesus, then that job is going to start to produce death in things. It's going to produce death in your family. It's going to produce death in your personality because you become maybe arrogant because you think you're really good at your job. Or you're going to be discouraged and depressed because you think you're bad at your job and you think that your identity is based on how you do at your job. Rather than understanding that your identity is ultimately wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he has done for you and who he has made you in Christ, a child of the living God and heir to the kingdom. You see it? You see how quickly if we start finding our identity in other things and we miss Jesus, 
Things start to die and fall apart. But the more that we start to find our identity in Christ, the more that we're able to help others and speak into the lives of others and point others towards Jesus producing fruit to the glory of God's name. See, that's what God has made us for. Once our identity is firmly grounded in Christ, God puts us to work with the hope that we can be fruitful in every good work. In other words, if we're connected to the good root, we will produce good fruit. And I I take this fruit, as I've said before, to include all kinds of things. Fruits of the Spirit. Obedience to God's Word. Sacrificial love for one another. A witness to unbelievers. We will produce more and more fruit. We also see in verse 10 a second thing that he says that will grow in, and that's more and more knowledge. Did you notice that? As you grow in the knowledge of God's will as expressed in Christ, that you will increase in the knowledge of God. See, we'll all progressively grow in our knowledge of Christ and what it means for our identity and our identity and the identity of others. We will look at ourselves and others differently more and more the more clearly that we see Christ, the more clearly that He comes into view. So if our understanding of Christ does not amplify our love, if the more that we study God's Word and we get to know God, we don't find ourselves loving others more and better, then it could be that we have started seeking a knowledge of God for other reasons than what God intended. See, the knowledge of God in Christ ought to make us more loving. It ought to break us. It ought to show us the love that God has shown for us and startle us with that love and give us a heart and desire to love others with the same kind of humility and mercy that God has shown for us. And if we don't see that breaking out more and more in our lives, then it could be that we've started to use the knowledge of God, even the knowledge of God's Word, for something other than what God intends. as some kind of way to maybe wield power or control rather than to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You see it? And so we need to make sure that we're constantly, humbly coming before the Word of God, praying that our hearts wouldn't be hardened before it, but that they would be softened to love others. See, we don't learn to grasp more power or control for ourselves. No, we, we love to learn because we learn to love. You see it? We love to learn because we learn to love. That's the reason that we're learning is so that we can be more loving in the way that Christ has loved us. I mean, if we really have beheld the love of Jesus on display for you and me and seen the, the beauty and the glory of that love, it is compelling. It wants to change us. And it makes us want to be changed. And this morning, if, if you are tired and bored before the Lord, and you do not want to be changed, you need to see more of Christ. The more that we see of Christ, the more that it's not just that we are told we must be transformed, it's that we want to be transformed. You see it? Like that's what God's calling us to. Not only that, we see that we are promised more power in verse 11. When he says, may you be strengthened without power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. So you'll notice that we will have more power that comes straight from God's glorious might. Patiently and joyfully endure until Jesus gets back. But there's a final thing, a fourth thing that he says here about this growth that we should expect. And that's that we be a more thankful people in verses 12 to 14. He says that they are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. See, if we really understand the knowledge of God's will, we will be 
more thankful in general. Why? More and more, we will understand the greatness of our deliverance. I'm more startled by the love of God sending His Son to save me today than I ever have been. And that He would give His Son to redeem me and forgive me for for my sins. It's mind-boggling. And friends, that's the thing that ought to more and more capture our hearts and affections as well as our lives. So, you're looking to grow in the knowledge of God's will. Let me just close with some real quick thoughts on how we ought to make godly decisions seeking God's will above our own. And I'm just going to, I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. So just write these down. I've, I've talked about some of these before, but I just want you to think about these. If you're looking, if you're making an important decision, you know, you're thinking, and, and if you're not, then you will. So just go ahead and write these down. And so first is continue growing in your knowledge of Christ in the Bible. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us is through his word. Uh, There's no kind of um, authentic Christianity that is not centered on God's Word. God's sheep listen to God's voice. And so we need to constantly look to God's Word and study God's Word, looking for His promises. Uh, If you'd like to study the promises of God, you're wondering, what do the promises of God look like for me? Uh, To know the will of God for your life. Two, grow in trusting God's hidden will for you, that it is good. You don't know God's decrees, uh, all of God's decrees for you. You don't know all the things that are going to happen to you even today. You will not always see God's hand. You will not always hear Him explain why He has done what He has done in your life. But learn to trust that all things really do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That God really does plan to restore all that we have lost and more. Trust God. Trust God's hand even when you can't see his face trust what he has done for you third kill the idols in your life most of our bad decisions are made because we love something more than jesus something that is driving us to make decisions that don't glorify him and they usually end up badly so what are the things that we love too much what are the things that wield way too much influence over our lives more influence than jesus you know, maybe it's your desire for a spouse. Maybe it's your desire for a new spouse. Maybe it's your desire for a new job. Maybe it's your desire for retirement. I don't know what it is. And then, you know, there might even be a thing under that thing that's driving you. Like, uh, maybe your desire for retirement is really a desire for comfort, and you worship comfort, and you would kill anybody to get comfort, right? Because every God needs a sacrifice. So find those idols in your life. And if you need help with that, we have some great resources that we could point you to. We also have a a biblical counsel class that would be great for you to come to on Wednesdays. Or fifth, yes, pray for wisdom. Paul says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. When he says ask for wisdom, he's he's not asking for a special kind of knowledge. He's asking for a special kind of life that reflects a love for Jesus. So if you lack wisdom, ask and God will give it. He's given you his spirit. He loves to lead you in truth. Sixth, seek godly counsel. Seek godly counsel. God has gifted the church with elders. You also have other Christians around you who love you and love God's word. Take advantage of that. Find a community group. Uh, Put yourself in places where you can seek godly counsel from others. Seventh, do something. Don't be paralyzed, worrying if you're going to miss God. Like, know what God's word says, get counsel. Make a decision and trust God. Don't look to the consequences of your decision and and try to interpret what God has done. Like, just trust that you have made a godly decision, that God is pleased with you, and God's at work in your life. So do something. Don't just stand there. 
And eighth, rejoice. Rejoice. It might sound like that's hard to do when you find yourself at different places in life, but I believe that Paul meant this when he wrote from a number of prison cells, encouraging us, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I said rejoice. And if he could rejoice in a prison cell, then surely we can rejoice in whatever situation we find ourselves in to the glory of God. So do those eight things, and I believe that you will be well on the way to finding God's will for your life and also glorifying Him with all that's in you. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. Following is a program, Transforming Grace. Join me as we take a journey through the book, Transforming Grace. I'm Leslie Martin, author and women's ministry teacher for Calvary Phoenix Church. I am honored to share this book about God's abundant and magnificent grace for all of those who choose to believe. I want to give a special thanks to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for giving me this opportunity to communicate with you, the Heart and Soul listeners, in this very special way. Shame affects all of us to some degree or another. When we think of our past, we may have experiences and choices that we regret. We may feel a sense of shame for what we've done. Shame finds a foothold, even early in life. It doesn't really matter whether you had a church upbringing, only attended church on Christmas and Easter, or you knew nothing about God. Whatever our faith or lack of it, When we reflect on our past, there are choices we have made and actions we have taken about which we think, ugh, I wish I hadn't done that. 
if anyone knew what I have done, what my life has been like and where I've been, they may not like or accept me. God's probably rejected me as well. To some degree, every individual deals with shame. I was one of those kids who was blessed by being taken to church every week and having the values and truths of the Bible impressed on my young mind. I knew the Ten Commandments, let me tell you, and I can remember them to this day. I was taught the way we are supposed to live and what is right and wrong. Yet, even in that high moral environment, I still did things that I knew I shouldn't have done. My dad was a logger. He was actually a heavy equipment operator for a logging company, running a bulldozer and the high lead logging tower. During the summers, one of the fun things that we did as a family was to camp near my dad's job site in the Trinity Alps mountain range in Northern California. We slept in tents and mom cooked with a cast iron kettle on a fire and a two burner butane stove. My brother and I played with the other kids and swam in a nearby river. One summer, when I was eight or nine years old, my girlfriend and I spent long hours playing with Barbie dolls. She had the coolest Barbie stuff. It was actually store-bought. How I envied her doll clothes and accessories. Her Barbies had brightly colored paisley culotte pantsuits and the latest short short skirts with knee-high white boots. I loved those Barbie clothes. As the summer progressed, however, I wasn't having as much fun playing with her. I was thinking, I'm going to have to go back home and I won't get to play with all this great Barbie stuff. I began to covet her Barbie outfits and accessories. Now, I was a good little church girl. I knew the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, but it didn't help me from wanting her doll's things. So on the last day we were playing Barbies, when she wasn't looking, I took one of her Barbie's dresses. Now you may think, that's a silly, insignificant thing. Everyone makes childish mistakes. But when you're a little kid and you know better, it's a huge dilemma. I hid the Barbie dress in my own Barbie case and took it home. While I had that pink polka-dotted dress the entire school year, playing Barbies wasn't fun anymore. In fact, I started playing Barbies in my closet because I was afraid my mom would find out. She might ask me, where did you get that dress? So I hid it in my closet and played all by myself, feeling miserable, ashamed, and guiltier as the months crept on. I couldn't wait for the next summer when I could return that Barbie outfit and say, I'm so sorry I stole this dress. Will you please forgive me? When the Barbie dress was finally returned, I did feel relieved, yet at the same time, I continued to carry the shame of that experience. Even though I knew my friend forgave me and God forgave me, there was something unsettling about it that attached itself to me. That something was shame. Although I was only a child, I felt a deep sense of shame for the first time. If people knew what I had done, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. I'm so ashamed. The humiliation and embarrassment that I experienced was so real and tangible that it seemed to me that everyone could see the shame hanging around my neck. It was like wearing a lanyard with a name tag attached on which was written S-H-A-M-E in large, big letters for everyone to read. 
As time went by, I collected other shame tags. When I hit my teen years and mouthed off at my parents, I knew better than that. Even though they forgave me, I still felt ashamed. I was the good girl. I wasn't supposed to say things like that with such a disrespectful attitude. Other shame cards found their way around my neck. I began dating in those years. Even with my church attendance and moral training, I occasionally let myself step across relational boundaries that were too intimate for that time in my life. I was well on my way to having a large shame collection hanging around my neck. You may think, those are little things. They're not that bad. But those little things were very shameful to me because I was religious. I knew right from wrong, and I deliberately chose to do what I knew was wrong. I was ashamed of the way I had lived and the choices I had made. I was ashamed of my mistakes and my failures. The degree of our sin, how bad it may be as rated by ourselves or others, is not really that critical when we are considering the shame we feel for our sin. We all collect shame, whether we are a moral person as others judge us, or someone who has really blown it as we may assess ourselves. Shame collecting is universal. It's hard to detach from the shame that hangs around our necks. Even if you are a Christian and you've experienced grace and forgiveness, you can still struggle with a lingering sense of shame because shame is not the same thing as guilt. When we have received and accepted forgiveness, the guilt for what we have done drops away. The shame we feel, however, may continue to weigh us down. Shame can accompany guilt, but they're entirely different. Guilt is the conviction that I've done something wrong. It's a wonderful gift that God gives to help point us in the right direction and to bring us to the place of saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. We can also make that kind of apology to others when necessary. Guilt is a gift because it points out our sin and prompts us to seek forgiveness. Shame is entirely different from guilt. Shame involves feelings of self-loathing, embarrassment, fear of being exposed, like hiding in the closet to avoid being found out, and trying to cover up. It's not just our knowing that we have made a mistake. It's our belief that we are the mistake. That's the difference. Shame identifies us by our sin. Shame is the self-talk that goes something like this. If people really knew me and they knew what I've done, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. I had started to think of myself as a thief, a bad person, as I looked at myself through the prism of my failures and mistakes. In time, those shame-filled thoughts became my identity. They became the way I thought of myself. My husband often says, I love it when people come into the church and they say, I am an alcoholic, but they're a Christian. He enjoys telling them, you are not an alcoholic when you are a Christian. You are a man or a woman in Christ. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're an alcoholic. The rest of your life, you don't have to affirm an incorrect identity by saying, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm an adulterer, I'm a murderer, I'm a thief, 
I'm a cheat. I'm a gossip. I'm a backbiter. Whatever issues have caused us to feel shame in our life, our sin, mistakes, and failures, do not define us. Our sin is not our identity. God sees us through eyes of love and grace, and there is no shame. Let's take a look at the origin of shame as spoken of in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Then we're going to turn to the New Testament and look at another example of shame in the Scripture. It's appropriate to go to Genesis, the book of beginnings, to find the origin of shame, because shame got its hold on people right at the start. When God created Adam and Eve, they were completely whole and perfect without any hint of shame. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The nakedness of Adam and Eve didn't cause them to feel ashamed. In fact, they were completely comfortable and transparent with each other. They didn't hide anything from each other or from God. They were perfect because God had made everything good, including them. When they ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, however, they began to have a disturbing self-awareness. All of a sudden, they acquired the self-awareness that they were dirty in some way. For the first time, they realized that they were naked and they looked for ways to cover themselves. They felt ashamed and naked. They were literally attacked by shame. They were the only two people on the planet and they were ashamed. That's pretty sad, isn't it? As a kid, I collected dolls. Dolls that had belonged to my mom and to my grandparents were all lined up on the shelves in my room with all the other dolls I had collected. At one point, as I was getting a little older, around junior high age, I started freaking out because of all those eyes looking at me. I wonder whether that's similar to Adam and Eve's experience. They were the only two people on earth, but were they uncomfortable with the giraffes and the monkeys looking at their nakedness? Oh, we're so ashamed. They realized they were naked and they felt exposed, embarrassed, and uncomfortable with themselves and with each other. The Bible goes on to say that they sewed fig leaves together and made, quote, clothing for themselves. Genesis 3-7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. We used to have a fig tree in our yard. After picking figs and brushing up against fig leaves, I've come to the realization that you and I would have to be completely desperate to wear fig leaves because they are extremely irritating when your skin brushes up against them. Can you imagine wearing fig leaves? How in the world did they sew fig leaves together for their coverings? These were desperate people, very desperate they reached for the first thing they could find to try to cover up because they were overcome by shame. From that point on, they couldn't be who they were created to be. Shame is at the root of all our efforts to conceal ourselves from others. We're afraid of people knowing the real us. We pretend to be something that deep down we believe we really aren't. We don't let people in. We don't let them know our past, our struggles, and the awful things that we have done. Continuing in the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, verse 8, 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Why did they hide? They hid because of fear and shame. They had never experienced the fear of self-disclosure. Before they ate from the tree of knowledge, their relationship with each other and with God was that of total love, acceptance, intimacy, and transparency. But shame motivated them to cover up. Shame compelled them to run and hide. Shame is still one of Satan's most powerful tools to drive us away from God and from each other. Cover up! Run! Hide! Don't let anyone know who you really are. We may cry out, I've done something disgusting. And Satan will whisper, you are something disgusting. That's shame. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.